Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 88 of Crunch Time. I'm your host, Sam Gatsi, and with me today, as always, is Tanner Dizzle. Tanner, how are we doing today? I tell you what, Sam, I am conflicted. You know why I'm conflicted? Why is that? Because we only have three games left yeah. of the NCAA tournament. I mean, we, we went through this at the end of football season yeah. where we're just trying to enjoy it, but are having a hard time. Dealing with the fact that we're going to lose it real soon. Don't cry because yeah. it's over. Be happy that it happened. Yeah. Um, but we got some things on the horizon in the sports world. You know, baseball's coming back. Whoop. You're you're loving that, Sam. I know you are. Um, but yeah, man, I'm, I'm ready to get right into it. Yeah, unfortunately, baseball is <laughs> coming back. But we got an action-packed episode for y'all. Winners and losers is reappearing once again in the episode. We're going to dive into those March Madness games. With all except one, I'd say, was fantastic. And with baseball on the horizon, opening day this week, we're going to hop back on the diamond with Dizzlin. And then we're going to wrap up the episode with questions. Let's do it. We talk about this and so much more on episode 88 of Crunch Time. It's Tanner, let's hop right into it. Who is your winner? I tell you what, Sam, it's not so much who is my winner as in what is my winner. My winner for today's episode is going to be women's college basketball. That is right. We talk a lot about the men's game on here, but... Felt like it might be time to show some love to the women's game because yeah. their tournament is going on right now as well. And you and I seem to be pretty – we're pretty invested in it yeah. because Iowa is going to Absolutely. the final four. But yeah. we, we'll, we'll go we'll go more on uh, down that road in a little bit. But specifically, the, the, the women's basketball game right now, I'm not sure – I mean, when I say I'm not sure, I, I, I am sure. I'm fairly certain it has never been in a better place as it is right yeah. now. Um the, the the superstars right now, honestly, the superstars alive in the women's tournament, it outpaces the super superstars that are alive in the yeah. men's tournament. There Absolutely. is more star power in the women's tournament, st- still alive in the women's tournament right now. And let me tell you this, Sam, the Iowa-Louisville game uh, that was on Sunday night, yeah, um, that viewership was more than any NBA game on ESPN wow. so far this year. Wow. More people watched Iowa-Louisville in the Women's Elite Eight than any NBA game this year. It has been electric so far. The sport seems to be growing and growing and growing. The interest is there. I tell you what, Sam, I also did some digging in ticket prices because that, you know, always got to see what the get-in price is. Well, the men's tournament for the Final Four, you want to get into the nosebleed, just the get-in price is around 75 bucks. Um, the women's tournament, the get-in price, $285. These tickets are flying. The people yeah. are interested. The sport is getting views. I tell you what, man, it is so great to see. The more high-quality, engaged in electric basketball, the better. And it's awesome. It's just yeah. awesome. Also, given the fact I was in the Final Four, adds a little bit fuel to the fire for Absolutely. us. But, yeah, man, it seems like women's college basketball is in a great spot right now, as evident by ratings, as evident by ticket prices, and as evident by just general engagement on social media yeah. and whatnot. So so my winner has got to be women's college basketball. Big leaps this yeah. year for the sport. 
Yeah, absolutely. And my winner, I think, has a big part in the women's basketball. I think you could say that. Interest. And of course, as Iowa's own Caitlin Clark last Sunday put on a historic performance. She registered the first ever 40 point triple double in Division I NCAA tournament history. And that is both men's and women's tournament history and led the Hawks to a 97 to 83 uh, win, uh, sending the Hawkeyes to their first Final Four since 93. Wrapped up the game with one of the craziest stats I've seen in college basketball, period, with 41 points, 12 assists, and 10 rebounds, making it look so freaking easy. I tell you what, Sam, you said it was the first 40-point triple-double. Surely there's been a 30-point triple-double, right? Nope. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Not only was the first, I think it was the first 40-point triple-double in tournament history, it was the first 30-point in women's tournament women's, history? Yeah. I mean, she's she's she is her. She is all that. She is just the freaking human highlight reel. Nothing she can't do on the floor. Probably, I mean, one of the best facilitators I've ever seen play the game, yeah. let alone scoring, which is just ridiculously yeah. easy for her at this point. Everything's easy, except for rebounding, which when I say easy, she's when, the only thing that wasn't easy was getting her 10th rebound yeah. to secure the triple-double. So for a point guard, getting 10 rebounds is about the only thing that's not easy for her. Yeah, and she, as, as you would expect, she was taunting a little bit. Throwing the John Cena, you can't see me. John Cena hopped in on the love Let's go, for Caitlin dude. Clark. Even if they could see you, they couldn't guard you. Congrats on the historic performance, Caitlin, and to Iowa women's basketball on advancing to the Final Four. So super cool showing love on a national scale to a hometown Iowa player, but just – taking women's basketball to a height we've never really seen never ever seen before man and like i've it's crazy dude everybody is talking about caitlin clark it does not matter what sports outlet you are looking at it is caitlin clark yeah it is iowa it is a 40 point triple double yeah like it is crazy to see uh, and like you said, the hometown Iowa girl, I mean, she went to high school. Like I drive by her high school every yeah. day going to work stuff, yeah. you know? So it, it it is really crazy, but she is just as good as it gets at the sport, man. She is yeah, phenomenal. phenomenal. If you haven't watched her, please watch her. I mean, I think, I think the first, the first points that Iowa scored that were not either scored by her or assisted by her was like halfway through the second yeah. quarter. The game before <laughs> Miami played uh, <laughs> LSU and, LS, I don't, uh, Miami scored 42 points in the game. Yes. I know LSU won. I don't know how many they scored, but Miami scored 42 54 points. 54 for it was LSU. 54 to 42 in this Miami-LSU game. Kaylin Clark put 41 on her own. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. But they have a tough one coming up in that Final Four. Number one, South Carolina battle of kind of the two leaders of uh, the player of the year award with Aaliyah Boston and Caitlin Clark. So make sure to tune into that. I, I think that uh, player of the year awards announced soon. I think it's announced before the oh, game. Oh, really? I think it might be announced either tomorrow or tomorrow being uh, Wednesday, Wednesday the 29th or Thursday the 30th. Don't quote me on that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that the action might be announced by the time the game starts on Friday. Yeah. 
that'll be that'll be interesting. Let's move on to our losers. Tanner, who do you got here? Oh boy, my loser is going to be MLB umpiring. Classic. Sam, did you happen to see oh, this clip? Yeah. How could you not? Oh man, fresh off of a heartbreaking loss to Japan in the World Baseball Classic, JT Realmuto comes home, or I guess comes home if the games were played in the United States, but goes uh, and jo- rejoins the Phillies playing in a spring training game so close to opening day, you can almost taste it. He's catching. The entire play. Did you see the entire play, or did you just see the clip of him getting ejected? I, I saw what led to the ejection. Yeah, so, or ejection. So the, the the pitcher for the Phillies, he's uh, I believe it was Craig Kimbrell. He was throwing, didn't like the ball. So he tossed it to the side, asked for another one. JT Ralamuto, as a lot of catchers do, he put his glove up kind of like this. If you're watching on YouTube, you can kind of see me do it. Yeah. Put his glove up without looking at the umpire uh, to – as some umpires put the ball in the glove, some throw it to the pitcher. Well, he did that, expecting the ball to be in his glove. The umpire ended up throwing it to the pitcher. Um, Kimbrell caught it, looked at the ball, didn't like that one either. So he threw that one to the side and asked for another. So JT Ramuta did the same thing. And then about for about half a second, then he was like, oh, wait, he just threw the last ball to the pitcher. He's going to do it again. So I'm going to put my glove down. Well, as soon as he puts his glove down, the umpire decides he's going to give JT the ball. So he tries to like throw it into his glove right as JT's moving it back. And the umpire must have thought JT had it out for him and was purposefully trying to show him up because when he moved his glove, he was ejected for moving his glove because two seconds ago, the ump threw the ball directly to the pitcher and didn't give it to (laughs) JT Ramuto. And he turned around in complete disbelief and was like, I thought you were throwing him the ball. Like, I, I didn't even see you. His eyes were yeah. staring, looking at his picture the entire time. It was one of the most ridiculous things. One, we always talk about the you know the, the ego check for yeah. for refs and umpires and whatnot, and how whenever they feel like their egos tested, they uh, you know is when they start getting a little happy with throwing uh-huh. people out. And this was one of the biggest just straight ego moments from a ref. Oh, yeah. Is horrible. Thank God it only happened uh, in spring training and didn't happen in. I mean. Regular season game probably wouldn't matter because 162 of those things. But imagine we do that in the playoffs. Yeah. Subjecting him because he was not looking. He was looking at the pitcher. What a ridiculous yeah. thing. And just another notch in the ledger of just stuff that makes baseball look uh, look like it's not in a great spot at the moment. So that yeah. was that was a very tough watch. Yeah, that, that definitely is. Before I hop into my loser, we got some breaking news. The... Uh, the Basketball Hall of Fame class was just Ooh. announced. This is unfortunate timing, I got to say. But it is being headlined by the following people. Dwayne Wade. Okay. Dirk Nowitzki. Okay. Pau Gasol and Greg Popovich are the headliners. Wow. So the, that, that's the those are the nominees? Yep. Gotcha. Yeah, so... So big, uh, big, oh, and Tony Parker. So they are finalists for being elected, um, as well as WNBA legend Becky Hammond. Uh, so a official announcement later this week, full class uh, during the NCAA Final Four. So be on the lookout for that. But because of the unfortunate timing, my loser is Dirk's old team, the Dallas Yikes. Mavericks. Now, the Mavericks had a pretty big splash uh, 
on trade deadline got um got Kyrie Irving. Mark Cuban has said it, they kind of need that other star to play alongside Luca, and boy, has this been a disaster. The Mavs are seven and thirteen since the Irving trade, which includes back to back losses to the Hornets, who are one of the worst teams in the league, and. Both Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving have been struggling with injuries uh, since the trade. They've only played 10 games together. And Three played- and seven. Oh, <laughs> so wait, they're, wait, what did you, they're seven and 13 as a seven team? Seven and 13 as a team. Three and seven dude, when both are in the lineup together. Dude, I feel like Kyrie's just going to be like some – the, the the common denominator and all these stats down the road when it's like oh remember you know remember the Brooklyn big three yeah they only played together ten games yeah you remember when he was traded to the to the Mavericks they only played together ten games yeah. like everywhere he goes he's just out and he's become some sort of stat and it uh, yeah and to make matters worse the Mavs are currently sitting thirty six and thirty nine which is the league's tenth worst record so absolutely abysmal down the stretch for the mavericks playoffs coming up pretty soon and i think this encapsulates what is going on in dallas luke Doncic said i think you can see it with me on the court sometime i feel i don't feel it's me i'm just being out there i used to have really fun smiling on court but it's just been so frustrating for a lot of reasons i think that perfectly encapsulates what is going on in Dallas. he ain't having fun no more yeah yeah that that is true but let's hop into this march madness craziness one of the craziest march madnesses of all time now, some of the Fairweather fans might not agree, but trust me, it has been phenomenal. So let's kick off with a matchup nobody really expected. Uh, FAU taking down Kansas State 79-76. to Tanner, what are your thoughts on this one, man? Tell you what, man. This was, uh, first off, awesome game. As yeah. like, like we talked about early, most earlier. Most of them were. Um, it was a lot of fun to watch Marquise Noel in this tournament. Of course. He seemed to Mr. be the March. star. Yeah. Mr. March, all that stuff. Um, my one takeaway in this game is absolute dominance on the boards. Yeah. Dominance. 44 total rebounds for FAU to 22 for Kansas State. 14 offensive yeah. for FAU. Five for the Wildcats. It's where this game was won. It was a three-point game, and Kansas State had a possession towards the end of the game to win. Yeah, imagine if that rebound, uh, those rebound splits were a little bit more even. Kansas State wins this game pretty easily. One on the boards, just absolutely dominant. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, Vladislav Golden putting in a double-double, huge part of that FAU uh, offense defense. Um, John L. Davis, another 13 points, eight rebounds, just dominant on the board. I think that where this game kind of switched for me 
was when Keontae Johnson fouled yes, out. Yes, that was a huge uh, loss for Kansas State. I mean, we've seen it all the way up to this game. We saw that connection Noel had with Johnson. Obviously, the famous alley oop, no look. What awesome, a play! Awesome play. Probably give me the play of March. Should Reddit. be. Should, Should be. be. I mean, the mortal lock in the uh, in the. Uh, one shining moment, right? Mortal oh, lock. 100%. That that's going to be in but, that. But, yeah, not a whole lot to add, just pure domination on uh, FAU rebounding, and that's truly why they won the game. But got to give it up to Marquise Noel. Went out fighting like the dog he is. 30 points, 12 assists, three rebounds. I know he's probably disappointed, but, man, he had a hell of a run this March. Absolutely, man. I think that was part of the F FAU, um, FAU game plan was like, look, Noel, we're going to let you score. We're not going to let you pass. Yeah. Right? And we're not going to let you pass still ended in 12 <laughs> assists. It just yeah. wasn't 18, 19, 19 assists. Yeah. Right? And, that, again, that is another huge part in this game yeah. is that he wasn't really able to find as many of his uh, – as many of his shot makers and, yeah. and be the facilitator that he was earlier in the tournament. Also, as you said, Keontae Johnson only playing 18 minutes and fouling out kind of a tough look and really hard to bounce back from if you're Kansas state, but yeah, tell you what, one thing before we move on, one thing I want to say about Kansas state, Jerome Tang coach of the year. Co he has to be, Absolutely. has to be for the people that don't know. Let let him know, Tanner, what, what happened after this uh, big-time win by Florida Atlantic. Well, after the, after, the, uh, after the game, Jerome Tang went into the FAU locker room and basically told him, that was, that was one of the toughest games I've coached. You guys are a hell of a team. You guys are tough as nails. Just gave them all the compliments in the world, all 100% true. FAU has been an absolute dog all this tournament. Yeah. Basically told him it and said, you know, I'm rooting for you guys, and you guys are, uh, you guys were a hell of a, a hell of a tough team to play against. So yeah. I mean, definitely, definitely a you know a, a pinch of classy. Some may argue a pinch of cringe, but like yeah, still, definitely. <laughs> still, yeah, still the, the the thoughts there, and e even before, even before that, man, what he was able to do with this Kansas State program, predicted to be last in the Big Twelve, yeah. number three seed. Not, not, not just that they made the Elite Eight, that they were number three seed. They had a fantastic regular season. I think they were the number three seed in the Big 12 as well. Yeah. So they were even fighting for, for Big 12 uh, champion, regular season championship rights. Um, just completely transformed the program in one yeah. year. One year. Yeah. I couldn't name you a single person on Kansas State before the year. And no. now we're talking about him as America's darling at Marquise yeah. Noel, the star of the tournament, Keontae Johnson, you know, all of these players. Yeah. Jerome Tang was an excellent hire in Can in uh, Manhattan, Manhattan, Kansas. And his first year, he leads him to the elite. Yep. Make him coach of the year. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think anybody has any arguments with that. But the, you got anything else on this one? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's just FAU's MO right now. They shoot the ball. They shoot the ball well. And they dominate the boards. That's how you win ball That's games. That's how you win ball games. Let's move on to the other Saturday night matchup. Honestly, a snooze fest. Let's be honest here, Tanner. UConn absolutely dog walking the Bulldogs of Gonzaga 82-54. What were your thoughts on this one? Um, I'm just my thoughts are I'm just gonna read uh, a few things out loud. 
How about that? So one thing is 50 to 24, right? 50 to 24. You know what that is? What's that? That's the second half of the UConn-Iona game. Oh. Iona was up two. Iona was up two at half. UConn came out and beat them 50 to 24 in the second half. Um, The other one. Let's see here. Um, 46 to 29. That was the the next game. (laughs) That was the first half of Arkansas UConn when they got out to that hot start. Uh, 39 to 25. So not as dominant as the others, but still a pretty, pretty dominant half. That was the second half against St. Mary's. It always seems like UConn has a half where they absolutely dominate. And this game, 43-22 to 22 yeah. in the second half. When they get hot and they go on a run, which they have done in every single game thus far, they are unstoppable. I talked about FAU shooting the basketball. UConn shoots the basketball. Yeah. They have been knocked down. Even against Gonzaga, they didn't have their best shooting game. But they are not afraid to chuck that thing from deep. 31 three-point attempts in that game against Gonzaga. I think they even had more against, uh, against Arkansas. This team can shoot. This team is not afraid to shoot. They play with incredible pace, get up and down the floor, score a lot of points. And they have a dominant big man in Adama Sonogo, someone who is a bull in a china shop. He is always working. Beast on the boards, strong as it gets, tough as it gets. This is a very hard team to eliminate right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just dominating performance. That's as simply as I can put it. Sonogo shut down the one big force of Gonzaga. That being obviously Drew Timmy. Timmy only had 12 points, 10 rebounds, 4 assists. Not the numbers we're used to see. Seeing him put up, obviously had foul trouble. That definitely affected the game. But with the bull in the China shop, that's a great saying for Sonogo. Just dominate. Dominate Timmy, uh, forced him into foul trouble. But I want to shout out Mr. Jordan Hawkins. Shot lights out this My game. My a beast. Unbelievable performance. But just, just an absolute curb stomping by uh, UConn. Again. Again. Yeah, it's crazy what they've been doing all March. Next up, let's talk about the San Diego State-Creighton game. San Diego State inching out a win 57-56. Tanner, what are your thoughts? Um, my thoughts were this game kind of – this game played out perfectly for San Diego State because one of the things I was looking for, which team will impose their will? Will this be an up-and-down game? Creighton getting the ball to Kalkbrenner inside, Kaluma outside, playing with a higher bit of uh, – a little bit of a quicker pace. Creighton being able to shoot the ball. Will they shoot the ball well? If they – if the pace were to be picked up and Creighton would play at their desired pace, Creighton would have won this game pretty easily. Oh, yeah. However, if San Diego State would play at their desired pace, keep it in the half court, play lockdown defense and just keep defending, keep rebounding and eke eke and scratch your way to a victory. And that's exactly what San Diego state uh, did and has been doing this tournament. I mean, reading these scores, 
going back to the conference semifinal, 49 points given up to, to uh, San Jose State, 57 points given up to Utah State, a tournament team, 57 given to Charleston, a team that lost three games this year, four including this game, but three yeah. before this game, 57 to them. Furman, who just beat Virginia, 52 to yeah. them. Alabama, the number one offense in the country, 64. Yeah. And Creighton, one of the one of the better offenses in college basketball and an offense that was playing well, 56. This defense is for real. Yeah. In order to beat San Diego State, you have to play at a quicker pace because they will grind you down in the half court. They've done it all tournament, and this is just another example of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, San Diego State, I don't think anybody uh, predicted them to be here. Um, just an absolutely dominant defense is what's getting them uh, through these tough games. Let's be honest, they didn't play well on the offensive end. They shot 37.9% from the field, 23% from the three. But when you look on the other side of things, Creighton shot 40% and 11.8% from three. Obviously, the three three pointer has become a big asset of college basketball. And shutting that down for Creighton is is how the San Diego State end up winning this game. Big time. Big time. Just absolutely dominated. And if you get out and score and you score in bunches, the San Diego State team will struggle to keep with you. Yeah. They did. Get hot, get uh, get hot a little bit against Alabama. They scored seventy one, which is higher than what they yeah. normally do. But anytime you beat the number one overall team and the number one offense in the nation, yeah. you got to get hot, and that's exactly what they did. But other than that, this team has just kind of played in the half court, grind you down, lead to transition, get easy buckets, and play in the half court. Yeah, that's what they do. Absolutely. Take notes, Virginia and Iowa State. But <laughs> moving on to. The completely opposite of what we just talked about. Miami versus Texas, 88 to 81. Crazy game, crazy fun, up and down pace, all game. Tanner, give me your thoughts on this last Elite Eight game. This one, this one was very weird to me. Very, very weird game. You know why it was a weird game? Because all the way up until I want to say what halfway through the second, the the second half. It not only did it feel like Texas was going to win, Texas had this game by the horns, pun intended. Nice. They they just completely dominated the game. They did. They yeah. they they were in full control and just kind of seemed like they would cruise their way to a victory. Then Miami went on a little run. This happens all the time in basketball. Texas, from that point on, just did not show up. Yeah. Just didn't show up. They didn't. They didn't throw a counterpunch. They didn't do anything. They just rolled over in this rampant Miami comeback. Ended up and uh, ended up being successful. I mean, this team can really score the basketball and can really score the basketball fast. We mentioned how how little things can change. Little things can change. You know, the, the entire landscape of the tournament. Uh, Miami was down. What was it? Like. Eight, maybe yeah. eight to Drake with like five yeah. minutes left. Yeah. Offense didn't look good. Uh-huh. And and they were able to come back and win that game. Since that moment, they scored 85, 
against Indiana, 89 against Houston, and 88 against Texas. Yeah. So how much when you get hot? This team, probably the most high-powered offense, maybe UConn, but Maybe UConn when they get hot, but if not UConn, this team definitely is the most, the highest powered offense yeah. left in the tournament. They score a lot of points, mostly predicated on that guard play. Yeah, uh, and I want to highlight one of those guards uh, tonight, um, Jordan Miller. What a, a absolute career-defining game. In 39 minutes, scored 27 points, shooting – Seven for seven from the field. I believe he is 13 for 13 from the line. Absolutely dominating performance in a game. We didn't see Isaiah Wong really do what he's been doing all tournament. I think he finished with around 13, 14 points. So when Jordan Miller needed this have, he answered that call. Mm -hmm. Let me just put it this way. Talk about their guard play. Um, Miami starts four guards. Four of their five starters are guards. Wuga Poplar, Isaiah Wong, Nigel Pack, Jordan Miller. I don't know if you're looking at the stats. If you are, hide them real quick. Okay. How many points do you think the four starting guards on Miami combined for? They scored 88. I'm going to go... I'm going to go 68. A little bit high. 62. Jesus. 60. Wow. I can't do math. I'm wrong. Oh. 72. <laughs> oh it's 72. God. Jesus. Yeah, so you didn't quite give him enough love. <laughs> yeah. 72 points. Jeez. Wow. Wow. That's guard play. That is a guard play. You could say that again. But, yeah, you're right, though. It seemed Texas had this game, and then Miami, they just got hot. Absolutely amazing way to end this game. And what, what's so weird about it, too, I mean, you know, you, have, you, you always have these basketball games where one team will be leading by double digits, but it, it, it feels like the team could come back, right? Yeah. Doesn't, the game doesn't feel controlled necessarily. This was totally in Texas's control. Yeah. Like, I, it really, if you were a Miami fan, you were probably damn near out of all hope because yeah. of how the game was playing out and then just out of nowhere. The flip, the flip, the switch flipped. There yeah. you go. There you go. Yeah, just a uh, a crazy game. Nothing. I mean, this Final Four is one of the wildest we've ever seen. Obviously, we know all the storylines. No one, uh, no two, no three. Just an absolutely crazy Final Four. Let's talk about FAU versus San Diego State, Miami versus UConn. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I think what's interesting, too, is not only the teams, but the matchups of those teams, right? UConn versus Miami. We just yeah. talked about how, if not one, then it's the other in yeah. terms of the highest-powered offense, right? Yeah. If, you're, if you're Miami, you have to figure out a way to weather the storm when UConn goes on a run. Again, first off, basketball itself. A game of runs. Yep. Each team will probably have a big time run where the crowd will get involved. The other coach will call a timeout. Every, you know, the, their bench players just or run on the court, and it'll yeah. it'll it'll be a like a huge a huge shove of momentum in their direction. When UConn has that, weather the storm. 
Yeah. Throw yeah. a counter punch. Go on a mini run right after it because other teams have really struggled in doing that, and before they know it, they're down 18. Yeah. That's the key in that game. It's going to be yeah. points, and it's going to be when UConn goes on that run, keep it close because, as we've seen, Miami can certainly go on a run too, yeah, whether exactly. they're down 12 in the second <laughs> half or whether they're down 23 in the second yeah, half. Exactly. Could be the difference between uh, Miami going on a trip, uh, playing for the national championship game. Yeah, absolutely. And then looking at this other matchup, it's going to be kind of San Diego. Can they slow down FAU and guard, make them play in the half court, which they've done all tournament. I mean, we saw Florida Atlantic beat some high te- in a high tempo uh, atmosphere. Obviously, Memphis known for running up and down. FDU, their smallest team, they got run. Tennessee, they kind of have that enforcer but still up and down kansas state obviously up and down this is going to be a totally different game and it's going to be who can decide the tempo of this one if it's up and down up and down i think florida atlantic wins this one but they are going to struggle mightily if san diego state can slow it down make them grind to get points yeah, totally. I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't put Florida Atlantic's offense in the same category as the other, you know, Final Four game, but it's Absolutely. it's certainly better than San Diego State's. And yeah. this is one of those games where San Diego State is all they've all they're really going to struggle to score the basketball if you get out in that tempo, just like you said, Sam. So it's all about imposing your will, dictating your pace. Yeah. With that being said, let's take a look at the. Crunch time standings. Let's do it. Please do. So, number three. I came in last. Got 36. Trash. 52 points. Trash. Eric, one of our special guests, was was kind of taking control of this. Fit comes in second place. 53 points. 36 correct. And then... The man, the myth, the legend, Tanner Dislin wins the Crunch Time March Madness Challenge. 56 points with 36 correct. So congrats. Congrats. Got got to tip my hat. Speech. Speech. Oh, okay. (laughs) If the crowd wants it. I will say, Sam, history was made this year. Yeah. I had a perfect region. Yeah. The, what is it? The West region? I believe. Where, bottom right, right? Bottom right. Your Yukon's in. Of course, that is the one where there was only really, <laughs> I think there was only one, one or two upset. upsets. Well, I think that there were some like four, three, three, two upsets, uh, okay. but those don't really count. But like the only, Arkansas the only upset would be Arkansas over yeah. Kansas, but I got it right. And I will say maybe take it with a grain of salt, but. If you come at me and say there were many upsets, I would say, show me your perfect region. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I did get a perfect region for the first time in my life. So, and there I won. Go. And I there won. There you go. So, it was dubs only. I'll take that. I'll take that as a success. Uh, um, bracket. Su- successful bracket. Yeah. All right, Tanner. He's. You've been doing well calling the games, calling the winners. Who do you have in the championship, and who do you have winning it? Oh. Sure. In this, uh, we'll start with the what I'll say is the least tempting. 
lesser tempting of the two uh, matchups in the Florida Atlantic San Diego State game. Between these two, I am going to break a cardinal rule that I set on the the episode where we had Eric on. We yeah. talked about our brackets. I'm going to trust the Mountain Ooh. West. Trust the Mountain West over the Conference oh, USA. No. Did you know, the, Sam, the Conference USA team from the Conference USA won the CBI? North really? Texas just beat Wisconsin today in the, in the NIT. NIT. The Conference USA wins that as well. Could the writing be in the stars for Florida Atlantic? I don't think so. I'm going to take the Aztecs. I think that defense is just way too good. Mm-hmm. And I've, one of the one of the best aspects of this Aztec defense is the three-point line. They yeah. shut teams down, something that Florida Atlantic likes to do. They like to get up threes. I think they're going to struggle to hit some. And give me the Aztecs going on to the championship game. In the other game, uh, I think I'm going to make a mistake that I have made, or I'm going to – I'm going to continue to pick against the team that I've picked against many times. They have cost me some money betting responsibly, of course. (laughs) Give me the Huskies. I'm fading the Hurricanes. Again, probably my famous last words, but UConn right now, (laughs) they are just they're just red hot. Yeah. They they are playing complete basketball. They are defending. They're getting out in transition. They're scoring points. They're shooting the basketball and they're dominant inside. It's a really, really difficult recipe to crack. Yeah. I think UConn is going to win that game. And then give me UConn over the Aztecs. UConn yeah. is – I think whoever wins this UConn-Miami game is going to beat San Diego yeah. State. Uh, excuse me, beat San Diego State in the in the championship game. But I'm, yeah. I, I got the Huskies. Yeah, I agree. I, I, th- I got UConn uh, beating Miami. I think they are the hottest team in college basketball. I think they've been dominant all tournament – and I think that domination uh, gets him over the Hurricanes. But, Tanner, it is written in the stars. Florida Atlantic moves on beating San Diego State and moving on to that championship. But like I said, UConn's the highest team, most dominant team left. I got them beating FAU in the championship. I love it. Yeah. I love it, man. I love it. I think uh, – and just check, the, the CBI was won by Charlotte. The Charlotte 49ers and North Texas winning the NIT. So There you can, go. Can the Conference USA make a clean sweep? That would be wild. That would be wild. <laughs> Who would have thought? Absolutely wild. But that will wrap up the March Madness talk. Big Final Four on Saturday night, so make sure to tune into those. But let's switch gears here. We are hanging back on the diamond with Tanner Dizzlin. Tanner, we had the World Baseball Classic a couple weeks ago. Yes, we did. Japan ended up beating the United States, um, closing out uh, a World Baseball Classic that brought a lot of attention to the international play obviously headlined by guys like trey turner mike trout shohei otani all these mlb players that decide to rep their country and it was a great tournament i can't i can't lie even as a non-baseball fan but taren let's know what your three major takeaways uh were from this absolutely i'm gonna start number one the obvious a name you mentioned number one takeaway shohei otani 
is the biggest star in the sport. He is the face of baseball. The entire way Shohei Otani was magnificent to nobody's surprise. Yeah. He can do it all on the baseball field. He had he DH'd, batted third for Team Japan, and closed <laughs> the gold medal game. Yeah. I mean, this dude is incredible. You can feel the energy in the stadium whenever he did anything. Whenever he's up to bat, mm -hmm. the phone's recording. Yeah. The, the buzz is mounting. And when he came in to pitch, obviously, final out against Mike Trout in a one-run game is storybook-type stuff. And, of course, yeah. Shohei Otani comes out on top. So my number one takeaway, man, Shohei Otani has officially cemented himself as the face of baseball, the star of baseball, and just the Biggest superstar in baseball at the moment. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, kind of along the same lines, but I think Shohei Otani is a big reason as to why this is the case in Japan. But the U.S. is kind of down on the totem pole in terms of countries' interest in baseball. Yeah. When you look at the atmospheres, the ratings. You see some of the ratings for these Japan games. I think J Japan versus yeah. Korea this year, which I think was played in Taiwan or maybe yeah, it was played I in believe Japan. So. I believe it was played in Taiwan. I think it was yeah. played in Taiwan as well. That game got like 50 million plus viewers. Like the entire continent of Asia was watching that game. Yeah. And it truly just shattered, completely shattered viewer viewership and like any baseball game ever. The most... I think the most watched World Series game was close to that, but nothing else, like nothing else compared. So yeah. specifically in Japan. And then you go down to the Latin American countries, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, even Venezuela, like those teams, Cuba even, when they were playing and uh, they were playing in Miami. So, yeah. you know, a big Latin American uh, constituency down in Miami. But from... First pitch to last pitch. The stadium was buzzing. There were flags. People were yeah, singing. People were dancing. People love this tournament, man. And it's, it gives a lot of people outlets to show their national pride. And it seems like a lot of other countries did so more than the U.S. So my second takeaway was that baseball just simply isn't as important in the U.S. as it is to some other countries. Yeah, with that, though, timing was... Definitely. I think timing was a factor in that. Obviously, March Madness was going on at the same time. I this think is that true. definitely had an impact on it, but I, I see what you're saying. This is true. This is true. And I think I may have more about the timing of the tournament later, yeah. later on. And uh, number three, my number three takeaway is the United States, specifically the United States, because really only seemed to be a problem for for them yeah they need to convince top pitching talent to yeah. come and play for the u.s this was a team that really struggled to pitch the ball all tournament yeah. long um the game against mexico in their group stage i think mexico blitzed them with like four or five runs in the first yeah, couple innings crazy. i think they ended up winning seven you know seven to seven to two or something yeah. um yeah, it was it was a it was a team who struggled to pitch the ball. You know, as I say this um, against Japan, who was the highest scoring team in the tournament, they held them to uh, what was it three runs? I think yeah. it was three two final. Uh, so the pitching wasn't bad in the championship game, but throughout the tournament, in order for the yeah, U.S. to cement right. themselves as a powerhouse in 
the baseball in the international baseball realm got to get the pitching talent because they sat out this year and it, it hurt the team big time yeah absolutely i think even non-baseball fans could could tell that the uh the u.s pitching staff was definitely lacking but obviously with a non-mlb tournament some unfortunate events happen and those being injuries obviously jose altuve was one and sorry to reopen this he's smiling he's he's smiling in a post game celebration with all the with those two injuries kind of to the bigger names of the world of baseball do you think this will decrease a player's interest in participating in the world baseball classic in the future honestly no i do not and i'll tell you why there well there are a few reasons why first off you mentioned before a lot of the 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 names that were playing in this year and you know how they went about you mentioned trey turner yeah trey turner hit a grand slam in the quarterfinals for the u.s it was pretty crazy for the u.s to beat venezuela and move on and he said it was the most important swing of my life. Yeah. He has played, he has not only played, he has won a World Series with the Washington Nationals. Yeah. He has gone to the postseason with the Nationals and with the Dodgers. He has played so much meaningful baseball in his life. And he said the most important swing of his career was that grand slam yeah. against Venezuela. You have Mike Trout. Mike Trout, who for the longest time, the greatest player on planet Earth. Yeah. Depending on who you ask now, that might not be the case. But for the longest time, undisputed best player on yeah. planet Earth. He is one of the best to ever do it in the sport. He said he, this was the most fun he's ever had playing yeah. baseball. He, I mean, you could see it in the way he played, the way he was smiling, laughing, cheering, all of it, the energy he came out with. Yeah. He loved playing baseball for the United States with his teammates with yeah. his American teammates. Some of the other stuff, the viewership that Japan got, what I mentioned before, the, uh, the interest in the, the Latin American countries when they played Miami, that type of stuff sticks with people. When you have the biggest stars in the game talking about how much fun it was, how much they loved playing for their country and how much, how much it brought such a different perspective to the game. Right yeah. when you when you're playing we're playing 162 regular season games to go on and play five seven game series, that's a different feel than when you have maybe four games to move on in yeah. your group. Then you have a one game quarterfinal, one game semifinal, mm-hmm. and one game gold medal match. That is different. And with with the level with the level of interest, with the level of energy, and with the level of just playing fun that the yeah. stars had this year, I think you are going to see record participant when it comes back around. Yeah. Record participation when it comes back around. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely agree. Injuries are part of the game, unfortunately. But I, I totally agree. It just means more when you're re- representing your uh, home country. Um, it, that's kind of the story around Olympics. This, uh, when you put on your nation's name, it just means more does it always does and like yeah injuries are always going to be a thing and i know people have that well they play spring training right so there's always an injury there but yeah 
varying levels of risk, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like you can get into a car accident while driving 90. You can get into a car accident while driving 30, right? And that's kind of what we're like. One is more risky because you are playing in a less controlled environment. You're playing games that matter. You're you're more likely to exert all of your energy and yeah. just play more like you can get pulled in a spring training game. So while those level of risk isn't exactly equal, um, I think it is absolutely worth it. The tournament was absolutely awesome. All-time moments from, from this tournament. Yeah, absolutely. Last question I have in regards to the World Baseball Classic. Where do you see the WBC heading? What do you think they did well? Obviously, you kind of touched on some of those, the viewership being a major one. And where do you, you think they need to improve? Yeah, um, I I kind of mentioned, I, I think the WBC is going to be taking off here in the, in the next few years. I think they announced the next one is going to be in 2026. 26, yeah. Yeah, because this one was supposed to be 22 mm -hmm. but it got pushed back because of uh, yeah, COVID and whatnot. So they're going back to the old schedule. But 2026 is the next World Baseball Classic. And again, like I said, I expect to see record participation from all across the board. People want to represent the country. People want to play in this tournament. What did they do well? To be honest with you, I'm not sure there's some, there's like a conscious decision they made that they did well. It's it's just a fun tournament. What did they do well? Yeah. Is there's just a tournament where the people can people can represent their country and have fun doing so. So I'm not necessarily sure there's a thing, a specific thing that they did well, um, more so than just existing. simply existing, yeah. right? There are some things that I think they need to improve, though. And um, you mentioned one, timing is a big issue. Um, because baseball is a sport like no other in the fact that you're about to play 162 regular season games. If you show me an MLB player who goes through the entirety of the 162 games without landing up on the injured list once, that is a feat in and of itself, yeah. right? You're just going to do it when you're throwing the ball. Like, you know what much arm tension you put on your arm throwing the ball 100 times at 100 miles an hour? Yeah. Like, your arm is toast by the end of that. And that is a big part of, I think, what I mentioned before about how a lot of the U.S. pitchers didn't participate Pitchers specifically are weird. And when you're about to put your put your body through, like I said, pitchers will probably start 50 or uh, 30, 40 games. When you're about to start 30 games and you're about to go six, seven innings throwing 90 miles an hour on your arm, you like to be able to, to get your get your body ready for that how you see fit. Yeah. And a lot of the times, how you see fit doesn't involve pitching in a world baseball class like it yeah. involves pitching regimen involves working with your manager and it involves spring training because it's a more controlled environment if this tournament were to be able to be moved back where pitchers may be may, may be in mid-season form or or even after the season where they're warm right they're not trying to mm -hmm. ramp up their arm for uh for the the full season i think you'll see more more, just more engagement from pitchers and you'll see a better product because you won't see as many soft tissue injuries, elbow injuries, shoulder injuries, yeah. and control. I mean, you mentioned Jose Altuve got hit in the hand. That reliever probably only had two or three outings in re in like game situations yeah. this season. Getting the feel for the ball, getting the feel for your arm, getting the feel for everything, especially with pitchers, is critically important to limit injuries and just put together a better product and get stars to play in the tournament. So I think one major thing would be just critiquing the timing 
a little bit. Do something like maybe hockey does where they take the break for the Olympics. Yeah. They, they don't do it anymore, actually. But they used to do. Where yeah. They took a break for the Olympics. And, I mean, you mentioned how injury is always a concern. Like, totally always a concern. But we seem to be very concerned with it in baseball when hockey was doing this forever. And I don't yeah. really remember any concern because everyone loves hockey in, yeah. in the Olympics, right? And hockey is way more of a physical sport than baseball. Exactly. So why are we caring in baseball and not really caring in hockey? Like, there's always going to be injury risk. I hate, I hate, I hate the, the like, the just don't play because you'll get injured. Then why, like, every time you do anything, there's injury risk. Yeah. But, yeah, I think if we adjusted the timing, we may be able to limit some of those injuries and just increase engagement. Yeah. I, I think that's a great suggestion. Suggestion, excuse me. But World Baseball Classic is officially over Shohei Otani put on a show uh, to help Japan secure the victory over the United States, uh, striking out his teammate, Michael Trout. But opening day is this week. I believe it starts Wednesday. I think it might be Thursday. There might be a game on Wednesday. I, th I think the Cubs. I know the. I'm pretty sure the Cubs start Wednesday. I could be wrong, but opening day is coming this week. It is coming this week. So Tanner, what are some of the biggest headlines coming into this MLB season? Well, one is kind of going to be tied with one of my major takeaways from the World Baseball Classic. All roads in baseball run through Otani specifically when he is on a contract year. This is the last year of his contract in L.A. The team has really struggled since he's gotten there. The story of the Angels, two of the greatest players of the generation, and they can't make the playoffs. What is going to happen? Um, will he get moved at the deadline? Will he possibly get moved earlier? Will they let it play out and then they'll head into next offseason with him as a free agent? What is going to happen with Otani? I think that's a huge storyline because yeah. any team that's in the mix down the stretch, you add Otani to that team, instantly become World Series contenders. Yeah, so absolutely. that's going to be a big storyline of who's in on Otani when the trade deadline approaches. Another one of the biggest headlines might be a little bit of a, you know, of a homer because I am wearing the hat, but the NL East this year is ridiculous. Last year, there were 200-plus 100 plus win teams, and a team made the World Series. The team that made the World Series was neither of the 100-plus yeah. win teams. And that guy that we talked about who had the biggest swing of his lifetime and led the WBC in home runs, yeah, the best, probably the best shortstop in the league went to the Phillies yeah. from the Dodgers. So not only... Did they come off a World Series trip? Uh, but they got better. They got probably the best shortstop in the league with already two 100-plus win teams. You add Justin Verlander to the Mets rotation, replacing DeGrom. Obviously, the peak isn't as good as DeGrom, but maybe the durability will be better, and they'll yeah. have him available for more starts. And then the Braves, they did lose Dansby Swanson to your Cubs, but Matt Olson, Ronald Acuna, Ozzie Albies, uh, Austin Riley, they're going to rake. That yeah. lineup absolutely rakes. So I, the NL East is going to be an absolute bloodbath this year, and it is going to be awesome. Yeah. You kind of mentioned, uh, kind of dove in uh, to my next question here, and that is who is going to be 
the favorites coming from each of the division who who you got your eyes on winning uh, each division yeah i mean so those three teams in the in the nl east i think all three of them are playoff teams if i had to choose one to win the division i think i'm going to go with the phillies i just love i i love what they did i'm such a big Trey turner guy i think he is like I, I said, like four times already, the best shortstop in baseball. Yeah. Then you add Schwarber, one of the, probably the best power hitter in the National League. Bryce Harper, he will be injured for the per, for the first part of the year, but you finally add some much needed protection around him in that lineup, yeah. and he's going to be the MVP that we all know. And then the pitching, Aaron Nola's on a contract here. What's he going to be able to do? Zach Wheeler coming in off of a great season last year, probably um, – one of the best two one-two punches in baseball right now is Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler. Bullpen is a little bit of an issue. Brought in Craig Kimbrell to try and shore that up a bit. They lost David Robertson to the Mets, believe it or not. So uh, a little bit on the back end is going to need some. You're going to see how that works. But uh, the the bullpen seems to be the weakness. But this team can flat out rake, and this team can this team can pitch from the starting pitching standpoint. So I like the Phillies to win the East. And I did throw up in my mouth saying that, <laughs> but I do, I do think the Phillies will, uh, will win the East going to the central. The Cubs can surprise people. It's, it's going to be the Cardinals to lose. The, this yeah. team is the best team in that division. Um, so I'm not going to spend too much time here. The Brewers not, I guess they can surprise people too, but I'm, the Cardinals are the team are the team to beat in that division. And then uh, heading out West, this is, this could have been another storyline. The Dodgers, uh, Dodgers, Padres, right? The Padres got yeah. better. They have another year of Juan Soto. They brought in Xander Bogarts from the uh, from the Red Sox, one of the better shortstops in the league. That lineup mashes. They get Fernando Tatis back, right? So yeah. he was suspended. Uh, that lineup absolutely mashes. They're great starting pitching with you, Darvish, Blake Snell, Joe Musgrove, who absolutely shoved against the Mets uh, in the postseason last year. So the Padres versus the, the tried and true Dodgers the you know yeah. it's like eight nine straight years of winning the NL West lost Trey Turner who yeah. I don't know if you know this I think he's the best shortstop in the league they lost him they, they they were able to bring back Kershaw but that dominant team that we saw a few years ago some pieces are starting to leave they still have Mookie Betts uh, they lost Cody Bellinger granted he had nowhere near uh, his MVP self but pieces are leaving Pieces are joining the the Padres, so that's going to be a big storyline. I think I got the Padres breaking the streak and winning that NL West division. Yeah. Um, heading over to the American League, AL East is kind of a kind of a crapshoot at the moment. the The Blue Jays just completely underperformed last year. I think they will be better this year, but uh, Yankees won it last year. They brought back Judge. They brought Carlos Rodon in, big lefty arm to to pair with Garrett Cole. Give me the Yankees uh, in the East. In the AL Central, I'm going to go with the Guardians. They won it last year. Really young team, really fun team. Um, so I got the Guardians. And then out west, the champs. Give me the Astros uh, yeah. win, winning that. So uh, those who I have winning, some of the other teams I, I'm, I'm kind of paying attention to. In, uh, in Yeah. Heading into the season. Yeah, a lot of interesting storylines. You kind of already mentioned a guy to look out for, obviously being the face of baseball. Not only in the MLB, but worldwide, Shohei Otani. What's he going to do this season? 
But who are kind of the other guys you're looking out for uh, during this uh, MLB season? Definitely. And, you know, I'm I'm not going to sit here and list off Shohei Otani, Mookie Betts, Mike Trout, yeah. because we all know to look out for those guys, right? Absolutely. I'm going to try and find some other people that I think could be breakout candidates. Um, I guess, number one, you could say broke out last year, but I'm looking at Julio Rodriguez from the Seattle Mariners. Yeah. Uh, w- won the home run derby, right? And um, just – is one of the one of the best young stars in our game and i'm expecting big things out of seattle i think they're going to make a wild card spot this year behind the astros like they did of the mariners i I got them uh got them making a wild card spot this year i think i think they're going to be able to do that behind the astros over in the al west like they did last year Uh, but i'm just looking to follow up that rookie campaign rookie of the year in the american league absolute stud what is he going to do now that his name's out there right the sophomore slump is a thing yeah because people are now know how to attack you they have film on you i'm going to be interested to see how his his uh his game adapts from, from an offensive standpoint um i'm also going to look at adley rushman the switch hitting catcher from baltimore um another fantastic rookie campaign catching is at such a premium right now it's really hard to find good catchers and Baltimore really has a good one and a switch hitter at that. I'm looking for him to take big steps forward in his sophomore year. Another name, Byron Buxton. Every single year he is in the MVP talk in the first two, three months, then he gets injured. Yeah. Is this the year he finally puts it together and stays healthy? Pretty common conversation. So it's always going to be someone yeah. that you mention. And then, of course, you got some of the big stars, right? Ronald Acuna coming off a year where he was kind of in and out with that injury, battling the injury he suffered two years ago and didn't really seem like he was 100% at times. Can he, now that he's healthy, put together another fantastic season? Uh, Juan Soto, obviously, one of the best pure hitters in the game. Young star, someone to look out for. Um, So a a couple, you know, a couple rookies coming off of great rookie campaigns that I'm looking to uh, take a step up in their in their sophomore year and then just some some young stars that kind of have the spotlight on them coming off of uh rough years or injuries that um i'm i'm seeing if they can fully get healthy and and really solidify themselves as some of the best players in the game yeah absolutely we will definitely be on the lookout for those guys this upcoming mlb season but that kind of wraps it up for the first edition of on the diamond with dizzling in 2023 We're going to be coming back on the diamond quite often once uh, the MLB season gets rolling. But we're going to wrap up with the question of the episode. This comes from my mom, Carol Godsey. Shout out you, mom. And she wants to know, who is the most famous sports personality you have met personally? Love this question. Love this question. Thank you, Ms. Godsey. my answer is going to be, and to be honest with you, I'm I'm not sure you've heard of them, is Dwight Doc Gooden. Yep. Do you no, know who that no is? Shot. <laughs> Dwight Gooden was a pitcher on the 1980s Mets, the the team famous for their cocaine use. Oh, yeah. uh, 1985 um, National League Cy Young winner. Uh, he later went on to pitch for the Yankees, also. But I I sure met did. him. What's that? Trader. Yeah, kind of. But uh, he was much better for the Mets. He did pitch a, a uh, no-hitter for the Yankees, so like the Yankees try and claim that. Yeah. But he was a better Met. He won a World Series as a Met um, in 1986, one of the backbones of that team and one of the backbones of the cocaine use. But anyway, 
Um, I actually met him at a friend of mine. Uh, he had at his bar mitzvah. So his his brother, uh, his older brother, they had a bar. They're big Yankee fans. Had a bar mitzvah. They had Roy White, a Yankee legend, at his his cool. at his older brother's bar mitzvah. And then when it came time for his bar mitzvah, the parents decided, you know, let's get someone who played for both the Mets and the Yankees, so we can get very cool. So we can get uh, a lot of the uh, the fans involved. So uh, yeah, he came in. He signed an autograph for me. When you when you got to the table, you had to choose whether you signed a Yankee picture or a Met nice. picture. You kind of had stacks of them each. Love that. Um, so it, it it was pretty fun. Um, and I think pretty shortly afterwards, actually, he got arrested on more cocaine charges. Like <laughs> within like within like a couple months after. Oh, so nice. yeah, it was it was it, guy. It was pretty eerie, but <laughs> uh, he was a hell of a baseball player, and it was really fun to meet him. Yeah, that that's pretty sick. I'm not gonna lie. This one's difficult. I mean, um, I've I've got to meet a lot of sports personalities. I've met Bruce Pearl um, when he was at Tennessee. Um, Bastard. I, I met uh, Chris Lofton, who's like the Tennessee's all-time three-point leading champ. Um, Let's see. A um, lot of Hawkeyes. Mark Wiseman. You remember Mark Wiseman? Wiseman for yeah. Heisman, baby. Got a picture course. with him. Uh, of course, the fullback playing running back. Yep. Desmond King. Oh, we, uh, we yeah. We both met in, Desmond King. We met him at Walmart in Iowa City. Um, met Jared Utah, another Iowa guy. But I think the... I Luke Garza, too. Yep. Luke Garza yeah. had a... Emmanuel Moutier. Emmanuel Moutier. <laughs> um, Nick Legend. 30-point game. <laughs> never forget. But I think the most famous sports – I've ran into Marcus Wiley in uh, in L.A., the guy from Sports Nation. Uh, yeah. Remember him? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, so just running into random people. But I think the most famous sports personality I've met personally is the Bulls and Nick's legend – Joe Kim. Oh, boy. Noah. No, bro. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, awesome. So the way I met Joe Kim Noah is um, where I'm from is about Little Rock, Arkansas, about two two hours away from Memphis. They were playing uh, the Bulls. I was a big D. Rose fan uh, growing up. So me, my brother, and my dad uh, decided to hop over um, and go watch that game. Uh, we're down in Beale Street walking around. We see guys in black and red jumpsuits, very tall individuals. So we're like, oh. And we knew where the team stayed, and they walked right in. So my, I'm in, like, fifth grade, tiny fat kid. Um, walk in, and to my right is Joe Kim Noah. To my left is Taj Gibson. And then there's, like, Ronnie Brewer – and like all the role players on that team. So we walked past them and we're like, holy, holy crap. That was Joe Kim Noah. And he's very distinctive. Uh, like, I mean, he got the. Got he the ugly. Just call it what it is. Ugly. He ugly. And then I see the tallest individual I've ever seen. I see Omir Ashik in the lounge. Of course. I'm pretty sure I came up to his kneecaps. So I'm freaking out. Eric's freaking out. So my dad goes up to him and he's like, Joe Kim, we're huge fans. Can we take a picture? So I got a picture with Joe Kim Noah when I was like in fifth grade. So that that's probably the coolest uh, one I got. Dude, in his defense, 
New York was just too lit. <laughs> New York was too York lit. Was too lit. An all-time quote from the one and only Joe Kim Noah. I'd also like to throw another Knicks legend, Taj Gibson, mentioned in that yeah. story. Yeah. Love me some Taj Crazy. Gibson. Or 67. Yeah. He went to public school 67 in New York City. Nice. Nice. But that will wrap it up for episode 88 of Crunch Time with the N326 duo. Congrats. Yeah, made it to the end of the episode. So shout out to you. Let us know what your thoughts are on this crazy March Madness, who you have winning it all. Also, let us know what your outlook on the World Baseball Classic was and your how's your team looking this MLB season. And let us know. We want we really want to know who is the most famous sports personality you have met personally. But meanwhile. You can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at crunchtime underscore pod. And also make sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Crunch Time with the N326 Duo as well. With that, the clock has run out on this episode, but we'll see you on the next one on Crunch Time.